is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. You guys probably heard this, but Stan Lee died a couple of days ago, and I've been having thoughts and feelings about that, like I'd imagine a lot of you have. Stanley was a fairly divisive character within the comics world, especially lately. I think outside of the comic book community, he gets, I think it's safe to say, too much credit for creating characters that he collaborated on. And certainly a fair amount of that is due to his own self-promotion. I think within the comics community, he doesn't necessarily always get the credit that he does deserve, though, for the work he did as a brilliant editor and curator, both of talent and of the Marvel Universe itself. One of my big regrets from when I was doing the early episodes of this podcast is that when we would cover comic books, at first I would only list the names of the writer and the penciler and say that was who did the comic book. But it's so much more of a collaborative process than that. And while he may have taken more credit than was due him, that was something that Stan Lee did recognize was the importance and talent of the inkers and the letterers and the colorists and all of the people whose work goes into making a comic book what a comic book is. And you look at the talent that he surrounded himself with and that he recognized, and I think that was one of his great skills that sometimes is underplayed, is as a talent scout. I definitely think that Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and Wally Wood and a lot of the artists that he worked with should have gotten more recognition than they did. And that in a lot of cases, their lack of recognition was quite literally criminal. But there's a lot of recognition to go around. And I think that Stanley's name is justifiably writ large, in some cases, literally, on the pages of a lot of the art form that I really love. And whatever else you could say about the man, Stan Lee sold comic books, both in terms of putting out a marketable and desirable product as a publisher and as an editor, and as an ambassador of the art form, just selling the idea of comics to the world. Anyway. Like I said, I understand that he is in a lot of ways a divisive figure, and I think that that is completely justified. But he definitely hugely impacted an art form that I love a lot. So here's to Stan Lee. May his memory be a blessing. And let's also take the time to give credit to some of the contributors who are less celebrated to this art form. Guys like Joe Sinnott and Artie Simic, and Klaus Janssen, and Glynis Ween, and Romeo Tangal, and Adrienne Roy, and all of the people who do all of the work that sometimes goes unheralded, uh, that help make comic books what they are. Oof, that's a lot more sincerity than I normally dump into one of these things, and it makes me very uncomfortable. So, without any further ado... Let's, uh, do something else.
The farming barber uses scissors so he can give his crop clips. This is some straight up nonsense. So is this synopsis. Synopsis. Worst one I've come up with yet? Maybe. There's a lot to choose from. Defenders King Size Annual Number 1. November 1976. World Gone. Sane? Okay, having read this comic, I can definitely say no, world not gone sane. Written by Steve Gerber, drotted by Sal Buscema, inked by Klaus Jansen, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Don Warfield, and edited by Archie Goodwin. Defensive lineup. Doctor Strange, The Hulk, Valkyrie, Nighthawk, Luke Cage, The Red Guardian, and Jack Norris. Previously in the Defenders. The dynamic Defenders ran afoul of a syndicate of strangely skulled supervillains named the Headmen. The Headmen's roster consisted of Dr. Arthur Nagin, who I call Dr. Gorilla Body because he has a human head on a gorilla's body. Dr. Jerry Morgan, who I call Dr. Melty Face because he accidentally shrunk all his face bones and now has a melty face. Ruby, a sexy scientist who replaced her head with an organic supercomputer that can change shapes but usually looks like a red bowling ball. And Chandu the Mystic, a C-minus sorcerer who used to look like a regular old bald guy but now sports a body that has unicorn horn, bat wings, chicken legs, a snake tongue, and instead of arms has six lamprey eels. This cadre of crazily craniumed criminals kidnapped Kyle Richmond, aka Nighthawk, scooped out his brain and slopped it into a punch bowl. Our heroes retrieved Kyle's burgled body from Chandu, the headman who had been wearing it around, and launched into a plan to rescue their bird-themed buddy's bowl-bound brain from its perplexingly painted possessors. Steve sought out some surprising support and enlisted the aid of Jack Norris, the estranged husband of Barbara Norris whose body served as the host of the sorcerously created persona of Valkyrie. In order to retrieve Kyle's misplaced medulla, Jack borrowed the billionaire bird enthusiast's brain-bereft body and joined the defenders as they headed to the headmen's headquarters in suburban Connecticut. Our heroes eventually succeeded in regaining their non-teammates' ill-gotten gray matter, but not before being briefly abducted by the headmen, who subjected Val, Hulk, and Steve to some quick and unexplained brain surgeries. Upon regaining consciousness, the defenders defeated the disturbingly domed do-batters who had done them dirty. Hooray! Jack used Kyle's body to grab Kyle's brain and hurried off to rendezvous with the rest of the non-team. But unfortunately, before he made it back to Steve's sanctorum, he bumped into the Defender's old foe, Nebulon, the celestial man from beyond the stars. When we last saw Nebulon, the interstellar glamrock geologist was attempting to melt the polar ice caps and flood the Earth so that he could sell the planet to some aquatic alien assholes. What a douche! The Defenders thwarted the Celestial Flim Flam Man's perfidious plan for planetary real estate malfeasance and threw him into space. Now that he's back, the Bowie-esque baddie informed Jack, who he believed to be Kyle, that he had turned over a new leaf. Since his last trip to Earth, Nebulon fell in with a race of altruistic, if somewhat condescending, orange-scaled aliens named the Ludbardites. When he heard that the Ludbardites' mission was to find shitty planets and try to make them less shitty, he informed his new philanthropic friends that he had just been to the shittiest planet of all. Earth. And just what is the newly reformed celestial man's plan to de-shittify this blue-green marble? Why, he intends to pose as a nebbishy human and start a self-help cult whose adherents are required to wear clown masks and call themselves bozos. Obviously. 
The defenders managed to rescue Jack, Kyle's body, and Kyle's brain from the creepy clown cult. Steve called in some favors and arranged for the world's preeminent brain surgeon, the beautiful Dr. Tanya Bolinsky, to visit from the Soviet Union and assist him in repotting Kyle's brain in its original skull soil. Not only was the surgery a success, but the defenders gained a new crime-fighting compatriot, as it turned out that not only was Dr. Belinsky a brilliant neurosurgeon, she was also an accomplished costume adventurer, who battled evil as the unsanctioned by the state swashbuckling Soviet superhero, the Red Guardian. The crimson-cowled communist crusader decided to stick around and help our heroes for a while, and it was a good thing she did, because the defenders needed all the help they could get. Ever since they suffered secret surgeries at the headmen's hands, Steve, the Hulk, and Valkyrie had been behaving oddly. Val had been unusually irritable. The Hulk was irrationally angered by protesters and, if possible, more prone to quitting the team than he once was. And Steve had been suffering from irregular bouts of incantational impotence. When our harried heroes found themselves in yet another scuffle beset by B-list baddies who had been bamboozled by Nebulon and joined his Bozo Brigade, the defenders bolstered their ranks further by enlisting the aid of Luke Cage, hero for hire. Hooray! But in addition to addition by addition, the defenders were also about to benefit from addition by subtraction. For matrimonially-minded meathead Jack Norris was tired of palling around with our puissant protagonists. After bellowing his cantankerous catchphrase, WHERE'S MY WIFE?! One too many times, Nighthawk asked the belligerent blowhard what it would take to make him go away forever. Jack answered, perhaps too eagerly, $300,000. So Kyle cut him a check for $300,000, and Jack left. Hooray! And also, Gadzooks! Has our billionaire-do-well bird enthusiast really bought Jack Norris's bowing out of this book? In addition to Nebulon, the Ludbardites, the Bozo Brigade, and the Headmen, will the Defenders battle any new foes in this king-size annual? And, with 47 pages to tie up loose ends, will this penultimate issue of Steve Gerber's Defenders run still manage to raise more questions than it answers? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, nope. Yes, they battle Gerald Ford. And, no. In fact, the only real question that's raised, and it's one that's come up before, is what happened? Steve, Tanya, Val, Kyle, and Luke are hanging out at the high-tech secret headquarters in Queens that Nighthawk bought for them and they never use. Hey, speaking of things Kyle's wasted his money on, who's that on the view screen? Why, it's Jack Norris. $300,000 to quit last issue, and he's back on the first panel of the first page. Jeez. Even the Hulk usually shows more commitment to decommitting than that. Jack's image, which it turns out is a video recording he made before he left, spends a few pages recapping events I went over in the previously in the Defenders section. He concludes his recap by theorizing that Val, Steve, and the Hulk's odd behavior of late is likely the result of the brain surgeries that the headmen performed on them. Well, yeah. wonder why they never thought of that. Oh, it's because Jack, who was there pretending to be Chandu pretending to be Kyle when the surgeries were performed, never told them about it. What an asshole. Jack goes on to inform the defenders that he's pretty sure the headmen are involved in a new political movement that started out in California called the Global Head Movement. He goaded Kyle into giving him the go-away-you-asshole money so that he could use it to finance an undercover mission to infiltrate the operation. Okay. There are also some other issues that Jack thinks the Defenders should be dealing with. One, 
Nebulon in his human disguise is about to be appointed as the special envoy to the UN by Gerald Ford. B. The Bozo movement is taking over in France. And third, there have been a series of assassinations in India. When the tape ends, the rest of the defenders decide they'd better split up and deal with the various issues that their apparent new leader, Jack fucking Norris, has just assigned to them. Steve is like, Well, I suppose I'd better teleport you off to various areas. The other defenders start to ask how they're going to figure out who is going where, and Steve is like, Too late! I've already started to teleport you! Kyle and Tanya, you're in France now! Luke and Valkyrie, now you're in India! And since I'm the most diplomatic and best with people, I'll go to Washington and talk to the president. Good talk, everybody! And with that, he changes into a suit and flies off to the capital. Fair enough. Let's see what nonsense Nighthawk and the Red Guardian are getting up to in Paris. Wow. Nonsense is right. Nebulon's Bozo Brigade has taken over Paris. How can we tell that they're in Paris? Well, there are a few subtle clues. First of all, they are standing in front of the Eiffel Tower and speaking in a weird mixture of English and 8th grade French. Also, they started spelling Bozo, B-O-Z-E-A-U-X, which is fucking delightful. And lastly, they have a guillotine and are apparently about to behead a businessman in a clown-masked reenactment of the French Revolution. I suppose a hooray would be a little inappropriate here, but... What the fuck? Hooray! Kyle and Tanya leap into the fray and start punching and kicking clowns. They rescue the businessman before the mob of cultists manages to permanently remove his need for a hat budget. The grateful rescuee reveals that he has been targeted because he is the PR person for a company that has been denouncing the Bozo movement. The company is named Le Campagne Deluxe. The name is familiar to Nighthawk because it turns out to be one that Kyle Richmond owns a lot of stock in. Seeing as how Kyle has a history of inadvertently investing in a lot of evil companies, he heads off to investigate while Tanya puts on a clown mask and attempts to infiltrate the Bozo's French headquarters, Le Bozo Chateau, a name that is almost certainly the entire reason for this chapter of the story. Kyle pokes around and finds that Le Campagne Deluxe is owned by one Dr. Ruhart Ngan, a name which is both not a name and is an anagram for Dr. Arthur Nagan, a.k.a. Dr. Gorilla Body. Turns out that the headmen are concerned that Nebulon's plans for world domination might be at odds with their own, and have been opposing the Bozo movement at every opportunity. Nighthawk flies off to Le Bozo Chateau to retrieve an incognito Tanya and warn her about possible interference by a group of terribly torso-topped terrorists, but he is too late. By the time he arrives, the entire building is missing. Horrified, Kyle lands and begins vociferously lamenting what he assumes to be the death of the Red Guardian, gone before he had even gotten the chance to sexually harass her. Much. Then, Dr. Meltyface pops out of the bushes and shoots Kyle with a gas gun that causes the affluent avian aficionado to apparently disappear. Okay. Let's see if Luke and Valkyrie are faring any better. Nope, they aren't. Their story starts off with a page or two of captioning that tells us about how shitty India is. It comes across as pretty racist. If we're being charitable, I guess we could view this as an extension of Gerber's general misanthropy, and that his cynical view of New Delhi is consistent with his low opinion of humanity in general, but I'm not feeling that charitable right now, 
And it reads to me as both patronizing and xenophobic. Bummer. Anyway, people have been disappearing, so Luke and Val start poking around to see what's what. They find a dude with a fancy future gun and a metal box. When they take the box from him, it turns out that it contains a bunch of tiny little people. Huh. Dr. Gorilla Body pops out of an alleyway and explains that he's been working as a consultant to the Indian government and has been shrinking people down and making them tiny as a potential solution to overpopulation and scarcity of resources. Damn it, Dr. Gorilla Body! People should only be shrunk down for occasional superheroics or so that they can fly around in a medical spaceship inside the body of Martin Short. You know, like Nick Nolte did in that movie that Nick Nolte was definitely in. There's a brief scuffle during which Dr. Gorilla Body disrobes and then says some racist shit, allegedly to distract Luke Cage, but also because he's an asshole. I mean, if a 600-pound gorilla-bodied dude doing a striptease isn't enough of a distraction, then what's a racist jibe gonna do? That's just putting shitty racist frosting on a human-headed gorilla stripper distraction cake. The upside is that Val and Luke end up getting shrunk down and stuffed into a metal box with the rest of the tiny people. Well, that's disappointing. Speaking of disappointments, let's see what Jack, where's my wife, Norris, is up to out in L.A. Well, mostly what he's up to is playing dress-up and throwing Kyle's money around. In his attempt to infiltrate the global head political party, Jack is posing as a wealthy donor so that he can cozy up to the movement's leader, a pretty young red-haired lady named Ruby Thursday. Essentially, Jack is doing his best James Bond impression, which it turns out is a really terrible James Bond impression, and also is delightful. He attempts to seduce Miss Thursday, is found out almost immediately, and knocked unconscious. Hooray! When he regains consciousness, the C-minus spy uses his exploding cufflinks to escape, and crashes the fundraising gala going on downstairs. In front of the assembled guests, he forces Ruby's hand, and she is left with no choice but to reveal to the crowd of onlookers that grassroots politician Ruby Thursday is in fact bowling ball-headed super scientist Ruby. Well, duh. I mean, she didn't even change her name. She could have at least tried for an anagram. Although, I guess, yabur, Thursday doesn't really have the same ring to it. Anyway... Jack's victory is short-lived as Ruby uses her magic, or science, bowling ball head to beat him up, and then shrinks him down to tiny size. So I guess that just leaves Doctor Strange. Steve strolls into the Oval Office, grabs Gerald Ford, and yanks him off to the astral plane so that they can have a little chat. Nice. Strange starts warning the startled president about the potential dangers in appointing a world-conquering space alien to the UN. Unfortunately, the astral plane isn't as private as it used to be. Nebulon shows up, cops a squad on a floating rock, and starts debating the Sorcerer Supreme. The Celestial Man is like, Look, buddy, you've got me all wrong. I've changed. I only want to conquer the planet so that I can make you guys stop being such assholes all the time, and your planet can have peace. Me and my orange buddies started poking around in your earth mines and found that you guys all want peace, and this is the only way you're going to get it. So be a good sorcerer and give me back your president so I can use him in my plan for world domination. Steve's like, Okay, good stuff there, but the thing is, um, free will is, you know, good. 
Then he and Nebulon start using their respective powers to blast at each other. Nebulon's sucker laser punches Steve, yoinks President Ford, and drops him out on the White House lawn for his press conference. Gerald Ford is about to declare that America is a nation of bozos, which, fair point, when Steve pops out a limbo and slaps a steel manacle over the president's mouth. Hooray! Steve and Nebulon are about to resume their debate slash cosmic fisticuffs when the headmen swooping out of nowhere shrink Steve, Nebulon, Ford, and the entire White House down to tiny size and jam the whole shebang into a magic terrarium with the other defenders and assorted bozos and Indian citizens that they had previously littled up. They stand over the miniaturized captives for a minute and gloat about what good good bad guys they are. Then, tiny Steve goes astral and summons the Hulk. The Green Goliath leaps in and starts beating up the headmen. Ruby takes off her head and throws it at the Jade Giant. Interesting move. The criminal's crimson cranium bounces around like a super ball, confounding the Hulk, until finally, at Doctor Strange's astral insistence, the Hulk does what the Hulk does best. Eat beans? Okay, fair point. No, the Hulk does what the Hulk does, I guess, second best. Hulk smash! The magic terrarium is shattered into a million pieces, which for some reason reembiggens its recent residence. Nebulon and the defenders whoop the shit out of the headmen. Hooray! Then Steve and Nebulon resume their previous discussion. In a last-ditch effort to persuade his cosmic foe of the folly of his autocratic aspirations, Doctor Strange uses the Eye of Agamotto to instantly download all of human history into Nebulon's brain. While the Celestial Man is still reeling from the onslaught of information, Steve says, So, you see, if we didn't have freedom to do all the shitty stuff that we do, we might not have done all of the totally awesome stuff we've done either. Nebulon replies, Wow. Just, wow. What the fuck is wrong with you people? You guys are some straight-up irredeemable monsters. Even I can't fix you guys. You know, you know what? what? Fuck, Fuck you guys. guys. I'm, I'm going, going back, back to, to space. space. Bye. After the interstellar con artist disappears, disgusted at the atrocities humanity is capable of inflicting upon itself, Steve nods sagely and is like, Yes, Nebulon, free will is pretty great. The other guys are like, Um, that's not really what he said. Yup, free will sure is tops. The end. Or is it? No, nah, it, it actually is. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. My brain is filled with stories and confusion and delight. I don't know. Sounds like you just read a comic book, Corey. <laughs> it was so big. There was a lot of comic book in that comic book. And also surprisingly little story for how much story there was lots of accents that's true lots of total total nonsense unless i missed a uh how do you call it a kernel of sense (laughs) in the nonsense i don't know i don't know either but i guess we got no choice but to just uh dive in and try to figure out what happened what happened indeed where to begin to like just chronologically? Well, the story itself is broken down into four chapters, and then there are some kind of bumper parts at the beginning and end of those. So, yeah, I guess. Let's just go over the fact first of all. 
the four chapters. The The story is called World Gone Sane. Hmm? Thank goodness there's a question mark at the end of that, because I think I can definitively answer after reading this. No, world not gone sane. World gone cuckoo. Bonkers. Mm-hmm. Then within World Gone Sane, we have four different chapters, which all have delightful names. The first chapter is 50 Million Bozos Can't Be Wrong, and Bozos is spelled B-O-Z-E-A-U-X because they're in France. Oh, they have invaded the country. Uh-huh. Yep. Chapter two is called One Little, Two Little, 500 Million Little Indians. I don't know how I feel about that one. Oh, I do. I feel bad about it because it's super duper racist. Yeah. Not the title necessarily. The title, I think, is kind of fun and also making reference to the Ten Little Indians thing, which is, in and of itself, more than a little bit racist. But the storyline reason for it being called that is that the denizens of the country India are being shrunk down to little tiny cigarette butt size. So I think it's a clever title. I guess we'll get in. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, we will get to that. Chapter 3, Jack Norris, Secret Agent. (laughs) What a hoot. That was the, by far, by far the best part of the comic book. And if you would have told me going into it that the Jack Norris part of the story would have been my favorite part, I would have punched you in the dick. I'm so glad I didn't say that to you. I think we both are. It would not have gone well. You know martial arts, and I don't want to punch your dick, Corey. No. (laughs) Nobody does, I hope. (laughs) I hope not too, but. I think it might be naive to assume that. Oh, no. A lot of terrible people in the world. What a world. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) We're off to a good start. And then we get chapter four, All the President's Menaces. Mm. Of those chapters, three of them seem to have had the title first and then constructed a story that didn't make a ton of sense built on the title. Mm Mm-hmm. The one that was not constructed that way, Jack Norris Secret Agent, which I think I think we both agree is the best part of the comic book. That part made sense in a way that the other three stories kind of didn't. Mm-hmm. The bumpers at the end and the beginning were set up and then real quick, like, let's tie all this up. They could have existed without any of the stories in the middle happening, I feel like. Mm-hmm. This is the end of Steve Gerber's run. He gets one more issue after this, but this is his issue where he's trying to tie up as many loose ends as possible. And he really does it in the first five and the last five pages of the story. The stuff in the middle, it's this weird mix of filler and... It's not even a weird mix. It feels like filler, but that he didn't have time to do. It was like, I didn't have time to write a short story, so I wrote five long stories instead. I think, yeah, for sure, like, the France and the India chapters don't need to be in there, but at the same time, maybe his logic was, well, the funny heads are taking over the world. Yeah. And so I need to include some other countries. Honestly, it really felt to me like the entire reason there's the France part is so that he can spell the word bozo, B-O-Z-A-U-X. There was a fair amount of French actually in there, too. I understood a couple of the words. I understood most of them, and I haven't taken, like, you, you've you been studying French recently. Yes. I haven't since middle school, and I was able to pick up most of the French that was in there. It's, it's kind of that level of French. Mm-hmm. It is confusing that rather than having the people who are supposed to be speaking French either speak in French have little italics that indicate that the conversation is happening in French and have just the words be English or have them speak English with French accents, he instead decides to just combine randomly French and English in their speech. 
And like, he's like, well, I know some of these French words from middle school, so I'll throw those in there, but most of their conversation will be English. It was kind of a weird choice. Really, the whole payoff for that is we get to see some bozos, we get a fun spelling of bozo, and we do see that they are staying at a place called the Bozo Chateau. Yeah, priceless. It seems like most of the little stories were so that all of the defenders would have something to do. And I feel like if this wasn't an annual, he wouldn't have needed to do that. So, I don't know. I, I feel like this could have been accomplished in a couple of issues of the regular comic book a lot more efficiently. I loved, though, how everybody got sent on their missions. It was Steve at his strangest. Like, he just... <laughs> they have a, a very short debriefing <laughs> session where he's got, like, four newspapers that he just read. And Jack Norris sends his tape being like, I took Kyle's money so that I could send myself on a secret mission. Here's what you dummies haven't noticed. Partly because he didn't tell them. We had joked before about mm -hmm. the fact that Jack hadn't told the other defenders that he was there while bad guys did brain surgery to them. Hit the nail on the head, though. It he is didn't. made explicit. Mm -hmm. He did not mention it to them. And he's holding them responsible for not knowing what he didn't tell them. Typical. It really is. He's such a piece He's of shit. He's such a jerk, man. <laughs> Fuck that guy. Pretty boy. <laughs> yeah. He fills them in on what the headmen have been up to and what his clues were that the headmen were involved. Some of his clues make sense. Some of them don't. His clues were Steve's magic not working. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's legit. Mm -hmm. The Hulk being strangely and suddenly upset by acts of political protest. Mm-hmm. Okay, I guess. Well, it could just be he was upset. Yeah. It's the Hulk. Yeah, it's not out of character for the Hulk to be upset at pretty much anything, mm -hmm. but fair enough. His other clues were, Val got mildly annoyed when somebody threw a rock through her window. That's a pretty big clue right there. It's like, wait, what? Nope, that's pretty consistent with her character. Or anybody's character. Somebody throws a rock through your window. She, she didn't, like, make a big deal out of it. She got annoyed. She crumpled up the rock. Okay. His other clue is, and Nighthawk stocks are doing well. He's usually such an idiot that yeah. his business is tanking. <laughs> I feel like he just threw that one in as a little dig on Kyle. And I'm okay with that because okay. Kyle's a real asshole. Yeah. But so then, yeah, they're sitting around their big circular table, which in the opening scene has World Gone Sane question mark in it with a big question mark in the middle. I was assuming that's the title of the issue. It's possible that Kyle just keeps buying new fancy tables all the time. Probably an adamantium table that he made. It's like, maybe the Hulk will come back if I put a question mark on this table. Mm, maybe. Maybe. I think you mean maybe. Yeah, I did. Is that, did I say it wrong? Yeah, oh. I, it's, it's, it's pronounced maybe. Oh, my bad. That's okay. So once all the information is outlined... Doctor Strange has a stack of newspapers on his table, and Kyle's like, well, we should probably do something about it. And Steve is like, agreed, boom, you're in France, mm -hmm. boom, you're in India, and I'll put on a suit. I'll go to Washington. He'll go to Washington because, I, I'm sorry, I need to read this because it is the best Steve quote and is so insightful into his character. It will be intriguing to observe whether my carefully cultivated bedside manner proves as reassuring to presidents as to patients. Wow! Stephen Strange thinks he's good with people. If by good with people you mean putting, like, iron manacles around their faces when they're trying to talk. Yeah, he's great. 
Because that's what he does to the president. And I think that's what he does to his patients, too. I think that is his bedside manner. Okay, you're annoying me. Iron manacles over your face. Poof. Yeah. I'm so good with people. Carefully cultivated bedside manner. Nurse, I need 10 cc's of medicine. <laughs> and some mouth manacles. Mouth manacles. Stat! Stat! I bet he really loved saying that. I bet he loves... I, I think he ends all of his sentences with stat when he's doing doctor stuff. Mm -hmm. I think it's hard for him not to end all of his sentences with stat when he is not being a doctor. Wong gets really sick of that at home. Oh, boy. Wong, dinner for all of the defenders. Stat! Um, Steve, can I talk to you for a second? <laughs> Steven, could you come into the kitchen? Look, man, we're not in the hospital. <laughs> I know I'm your manservant, but knock it the fuck off. Yeah, I know we have this weird, kind of uncomfortable relationship, but gotta stop it with the stat. But yeah, he just teleports everybody off. He teleports Kyle off, I think, mid-sentence. And Kyle's like, wait, I thought we should talk about... <laughs> <laughs> Satisfying. Kyle in France. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the setup to it, and then they all go off on their little adventures. The France adventure, there's the bozos are taking over in France. Nebulon is about to be appointed to the UN. This is all just like new shit that just gets piled on pretty much immediately. And really, I am pretty sure that the whole reason for this storyline is for a fun alternate spelling of bozo. It didn't, it didn't make sense because that whole thing opens too with the bozos getting ready to guillotine like a PR guy for the other political group. Yeah, he's a front man for the headmen's group. I think it's supposed to establish that the Bozos group is in opposition to the Headmen's financial consortium. I get that, but what I didn't get is what that had to do why with they the, were trying the revolution to guillotine him and, and why... have a revolution. Because they're in France. They have guillotine. Oh, that's there. just what they yeah, do. I think that's that's pretty much it. Okay, okay. And then, you know, we get to have Tanya act as a mouthpiece for Steve Gerber and espouse some of his philosophical and political musings. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Red Guardian says the savagery, the brutality of this mob astounds me. I have long pondered the belief of Soviet leadership on dangers of free assembly. Now perhaps I understand, to my sorrow. There is a kind of madness at work here, more than lust for blood or vengeance. The fever only an idea can kindle. The fever that swept the motherland in 1917. Also, I am a vampire now. <laughs> <laughs> That's not in the comic, guys. No, that isn't in the <laughs> That's true. Sorry. And then he actually follows that up with probably the more interesting part of that, which is, But Tanya's musings over intolerable systems which breed revolutions, which become institutionalized and breed more revolution, is cut short as her body hits and rebounds from the hard wooden platform. So, okay. I think that was a lot of setup for Steve to have that line about revolutions becoming institutions and then institutions breeding further revolution, which is kind of an interesting thought, but is totally just shoehorned into this comic, as is really this whole story. Yeah, also really inconsistent with Red Guardian's thing. Like, she basically is saying, like, oh, I get it now. That's why they're so oppressive. <laughs> yeah, I didn't agree before, but I guess I see their point. Yeah, it was weird and is all essentially in service to the idea that the Bozos and Nebulon and the Headmen and their financial consortium don't get along. Mm -hmm. So, okay. We didn't, I feel like, need to go to France for that, but whatever. Then we get the Indian storyline, which I really didn't like. I didn't get it. So, 
there was a population control thing, which you was like, salt, it says that's bad that there's too many people because there's right. not enough to eat and stuff. So right. we're going to shrink them down to be really tiny people. Yeah. In the service of this is how the headmen are making that part of the so, world a better place. I so think, therefore they're in charge. Yeah. That's I think it. the idea is that the headmen have been hired as consultants by the Indian government to do that. But this is all in the midst of Steve Gerber just saying some dumb kind of racist shit, basically, about how backwards India is and how terrifying it is that they have nuclear power now. Yeah, he just kind of snuck that one in there, like, they can't feed themselves, but they've got bombs. Yeah, and completely, like, just glosses over the fact that you're, like, 20 years removed from colonialism at this point, and what a huge impact that had on the continent, and then that is a huge part of issues facing the country are, and just, like... It's combined with some weird caricature Indian denizens art by Sal Buscema. And there's talk about about how overpopulated things are. But that's juxtaposed with the illustrations are of very sparsely populated streets. And yeah, this whole idea that just like, can you imagine if these people have a nuclear weapon? Which he brings up a couple of times. And look, it's terrifying to think of anybody having a nuclear weapon. But I feel like you hear it pretty commonly, at least in America, the idea of non-Europeans having nuclear weapons is especially, for some reason, terrifying. And unnecessary, the whole thing. Yeah, really. It's it's weird how America gets with that shit. Can you imagine if any of these countries had nuclear weapons when we're the only country that has used a nuclear weapon against anyone? <sighs> yeah. In addition to the storyline being very problematic in a number of ways in its depictions of India, it also just doesn't make a ton of sense. And by a ton, I mean any. Did you see that movie came out a couple years ago that kind of had this as a premise that will make people smaller to solve scarcity of resources issues? No. Wait, Smurf? No. No, That's it was a... uh, Honey, I Shrunk Matt Damon. Oh, this is sounding familiar. Downsized. I did not see Downsized. No, me either. Okay. I think I might have seen, if, seen it if it was called Honey, I Shrunk Matt Damon. So many things for movie night piling up. Oh, boy. Oh, speaking of which. Yeah, I hear you, everybody. Nick Nolte wasn't in Enemy Mine. That was Dennis Quaid. Oh, Message yep. received. Although, in my defense, I'm not entirely convinced that Nick Nolte is not Dennis Quaid. If you look at a picture of Nick Nolte... <laughs> I defy you to tell me that that man is not Randy Quaid's brother. <laughs> man, that's confusing. Exactly. Hmm. So, I'm off the hook on this one. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, so a bunch of people get shrunk down as, I guess, part of an experiment. The headmen are arranging on behalf of the Indian government to make their citizens tiny as a potential solving of overpopulation issues uh and they get put in this tiny metal box that has holes in it and that box gets tossed around something fierce so like those dudes are all definitely dead right they're at least very concussed yeah like that box literally gets thrown back and forth long distances by people with superpowers mm -hmm. that can't be good for people inside there probably not no 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 that's that's a lot of tiny dead people and then uh, Val and Luke Cage get put in the box with the tiny dead people. This is after Luke Cage gets into a fight with Dr. 
Gorilla Body. Our Dr. Gorilla Body, mm-hmm. who we found out came up with the dumbest alias, but he didn't bother to make it sound like a name. Like, his name is Dr. Arthur Nagin, and his alias, clever alias that he comes up with is Dr. Ruhart Nagan. Yeah, I had to read that a couple times. <laughs> like, it's like, come it's on. not even a name. It's, not, it's, it's like a random new order for those letters. And he still put doctor in front of it because it's like, well, I didn't spend, didn't spend eight years in mad doctor school to be called Mr. Man. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, good on Kyle for figuring it out. <laughs> yeah, he's so clever. The other thing that happens in India is that Dr. Gorilla Body shows up. He's not just acting as a consultant. He also shows up with the shrink gas gun himself and takes off and puts on his clothes a couple of times. Oh, he doesn't want to be an exhibitionist, but he does weigh 600 pounds. (laughs) Yes. Which we learn are two interesting facts about Dr. Gorilla Body. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't want to be an exhibitionist, but I'm taking off all my clothes to fight you. And then when we see him a couple of panels later, he's put them all back on again. Oh, sure. We also see, much like he doesn't want to be an exhibitionist, but I guess I'll get naked in public for no reason. He also doesn't want to be a murderer unless it's necessary. Mm-hmm. I think he phrases that. I'm not a barbarian, Valkyrie. The thought of murder is repugnant to me. Excluding, of course, instances of absolute necessity. So please hand over the box or I'll kill you clever yeah also he's at least a little bit murdery do you remember how keen he was on mashing up kyle's brain with his big old gorilla fists mm-hmm. he's a murderman mm-hmm. just own it dr art he's also a fucking racist he claims to have said racist things to power man just to rile him up and throw him off of his game but i don't know it seems yeah that came pretty easily to him yeah i think that was pretty much at the forefront of his thoughts and I really appreciated Luke's response to it, which was, rather than get angry even, he was just like, really? Fucking, come on. But he does miss when he attacks him, which Dr. Gorilla Body takes as a sign like, see, it totally worked. Even, it was probably just you got subconsciously upset at me saying super shitty stuff to you about you having jungle blood, which you have a gorilla's body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I, a- Ugh. Very frustrating. So yeah, overall... Thumbs down. Thumbs down on one little, two little, 500 million little Indians. And I'm giving a thumbs kind of sideways on the 50 million bozos. Can't be wrong. In part because I really do like that name. And in part because it was a dumb, bad story. But I did like that spelling of bozo. And we got to see a lot of bozos. And we did get to see a lot of bozos drawn. And that was fun to look at with Eiffel Tower in the background and Mm -hmm. guillotine. And it it was a fun set piece, basically. Sure. Then we get to secret agent Jack Norris. What an idiot. (laughs) What an idiot. (laughs) I would read this whole series if this just kept happening. And I love that at the end of the story, he's still wearing his shitty secret agent tuxedo that he bought. I would love it if he stayed on with the Defenders in character as an idiot, shitty secret agent who was bad at it. Because that's what he is in this issue. And it's made better by the fact that he is narrating the thing himself and he thinks he's good at it. And he just comes across looking like an idiot. He's got a 
digital Swiss watch, uh-huh. as they are famous for. <laughs> He's got a cufflink that turns into a nose plug? No, no, no. He's got cufflinks that turn into bombs. Oh, and, and nose, nose plugs, plugs that filter out poisonous gas. Right, okay. And he has suddenly decided that he is very handsome and suave, which is certainly not anything he has demonstrated in the past. And people, for the most part, aren't really reacting to him like he is the things that he says that he is. He's just mostly a guy with a little bit of money in his pocket for the first time and just a ton of unearned swagger, which is pretty great. Yeah, he tries to infiltrate Ruby Thursday's cult, and we see that Ruby Thursday is, in fact, Ruby. Of the headman. Did you not see that coming? I didn't see it coming. I I feel foolish (laughs) for not. I was trying to not spoil it for you when I realized you didn't see that coming, and it was kind of hard for me not to. Well, good job. Yeah, thank you. But yeah, uh, we see that Ruby has started a political movement in L.A. as her part of the headman's secret nonsense plan of world domination. World domination. We don't ever understand what role exactly the Defenders' brain surgeries played in this, except that maybe they were guinea pigs in terms of they plan on operating on everybody and making them more resistant to new political ideas, but not if those are espoused by the headmen for some reason. No, I think it was just to to slow the Defenders down from stopping them from taking over. Okay, but I feel like if they hadn't kidnapped them, then they never would have tried to have stopped them in the first place you think it's needlessly complicated it almost seems that way Mm, weird but i i i don't care this story was so much fun watching jack in his big fuchsia tuxedo think that he's great at at all of them (laughs) he really he only has the one tool in his quiver which is grabbing ladies and smooching them when they're not into it and he tries that shit on ruby and she knocks him the fuck out. She grabs gun out of his jacket and bonks him on the head. Yep. Yep. Pretty great. Very satisfying. <laughs> it's really fun. It's just a good, fun story. And he is so bad at his job. And then he exposes Ruby as being Ruby, having her malleable bowling ball head in front of the crowd of her financial donors, I guess. Mm-hmm. That was the thing. He infiltrated her circle. He's got all this like, I'm a great spy and I'm smooth and suave and handsome. The reason he got in there was because he gave her $100,000. So she was like, yeah, you can come to my house. Mm-hmm. Yep. Why did you donate to my cause when you're clearly a male chauvinist pig? Died in the worsted wool, which was a fun turn of phrase. Mm-hmm. And he's like, because I think you're pretty. So let's smooch. And she's like, yeah, nope. Bonk. Bonk. Yep. Shut down. And he also gave his real name. Master of Disguise. Master of Disguise, Jack Norris. Oh, wait. (laughs) Two over. (laughs) It's kind of funny that he's borrowing all of James Bond's tropes in a way that illustrate, to an extent, what a shitty spy James Bond is, too. Mm. So, yeah, that story was great. And then we get all the president's menaces, which is... Doctor Strange going and talking to Gerald Ford saying, Don't send Nebulon to the UN, because that's bad. 
And that was fucking delightful. It's a lot of this story takes place on the astral plane with just uh, Nebulon and Doctor Strange and Gerald Ford sitting around. I loved that. I loved that it starts as this debate and then it escalates and they start like shooting at each other with magic things. And then Ford's just like, gentlemen, let's go back and negotiate. <laughs> Let, let's go have a press conference. It's also made clear that Steve Gerber thinks that Gerald Ford is an idiot. Mm-hmm. It is not entirely clear whether Gerald Ford has been brainwashed or whether Nebulon has just convinced him that he's great and that America is dumb. It's, uh, it is hard to tell. But this story also was very fun. So the story basically culminates with all of the defenders have been shrunk down to tiny size and put inside of this little terrarium where the headmen are all gathered around watching them and just being like, this will be fun. We built a Defender's Ant Farm. Let's see what they get up to in there. Mm-hmm. Let's watch them do shit. It'll be a great sociological experiment. And I thought that was pretty fun. But then Doctor Strange sends his astral form out, gets his buddy the Hulk, smashes him free. They beat up the headmen in like two seconds. Mm-hmm. And then it comes down to Doctor Strange and Nebulon having a discussion. Nebulon's basically still like, I'm still going to use this bozo plot thing to take over the world and make everybody wear clown masks. And Steve's like, no, don't. And then Steve is like, let me show you all of human history. I of Agamotto, show him all of human history, and he'll see that humans need free will to do great, great, wonderful things, even though they also do super fucked up shit. Here we have romance, uh, Hitler, atomic bomb. See how great humanity is? A couple other things, but... And Nebulon's takeaway from this is, what the fuck? You guys are crazy. He's like staggering, holding his head after. Yeah, he's just like, people are the shittiest. No, you're right. I'm leaving. I'm not going to help you. You guys just flat out suck. I'm going home. Taking my lovebird dates and leaving. Uh Uh-huh. And Doctor Strange is like, I think I did a pretty good job. I'm pretty sure Steve has not given that all of human history treatment to himself. So I feel like he's, like, read the headline of the article and it's like, I'm pretty sure I know what this is about. I'm going to make this guy absorb all of this information. And Nebulon's just like, that doesn't say what you think it says. It's like Steve thinks he is giving Nebulon the fifth grade social studies text about, like, how much progress humanity's made. And instead he's given him, like, the Howard Zinn book. oh man i'm still trying to finish that it is so sad yeah i don't know i felt like the end of it was like the end of i think a great many star trek episodes where it's this explanation of like yeah we're as a race pretty fucked up but it's our fucked upness that allows us to do great things they didn't show examples of any of the great things no they just said they just they, they said that at the end but he just showed him all of the fucked up things I wonder what, like, the things that are great that he was showing. It's like, and if we hadn't done that, you wouldn't have this episode of Laverne and Shirley. Yeah, there was some genocide, but we came up with penicillin. Yeah, sure. Marshmallow fluff. Yeah, okay. The Emperor Helio Gabalius used to roast human beings alive inside of a metal uh, bull, and the echoes of the people being tortured would echo through his hallway, and it sounded like a bull mooing. Yeah, that was pretty bad, but look, Lenny and Squiggy. (laughs) Charming. Yeah, good job, Steve. Mm, Damn, 
I didn't know about the bull thing. That's gross. oh man, Helio Gabalius was a fuck. He sounds bad. Yeah, not a fan. Mm. A lot of the Roman emperors, not great. Turns out you tell a dude he's a god. Eh, think things can go sideways pretty quick on that one. Better call Nebulon. Get some bozos in there. Oh boy. All gone. Corey, it's <laughs> a long comic. I know, and you didn't pace yourself for it. Nope. This is a good uh, drink. Thank you. I prepared us a couple of Manhattans to accompany this comic book. It's not strictly a giant-sized comic, but it's a pretty damn big-sized comic. So uh, I prepared us what I thought was enough Manhattans, but Corey has finished all of his whiskey drink already. It was, just for those drinking along at home. It was good. Have you ever shared the It Was Good story? I can't remember. Is Corey's grandfather at a Thanksgiving dinner? Mm-hmm. Dementia had set in for, for Bob at that point. Yep. He picked up and drank a tureen of gravy. And when confronted by the family, <laughs> Bob, what are you doing? His response was, It's good! <laughs> Not unlike the Manhattans. <laughs> That hub is prepared for us. <laughs> Which Corey just drank. Yes, these were Manhattans with, uh, it was Irish whiskey with a little bit of hazelnut liqueur and chocolate bitters and just a couple of drops of am- amaretto cherry juice. Very good. Very tasty. What were we talking about before that? That's pretty much the plot. There are a couple of fun little scenes that are within it. When Doctor Strange and Nebulon are confronted by the headmen and their forces, Doctor Strange looks up and says, Demons of Dinak! And Nebulon looks up and says, Star Swarms of Signy! Oh. And I was like, that's a fun exclamation. I didn't know he did alliterative mm. exclamations when he was upset, too. You, you and Steve aren't so different, Nebulon. I think they'd get along if given a chance. I don't know if they could, because the ways that they're pretty similar are that they're both horrific egomaniacs. Oh, that's a good point. But that doesn't necessarily make for the best of chums. Yeah, they might butt heads. They are butt heads. Ah. What, was there anything else you wanted to bring up before we get into the minutia? There was just one little bit. So Ruby in president presidential candidate form refers to Norris as a MCP, a male chauvinist pig, and that's that's mm-hmm. got a little bit of exposition at the bottom that's attributed to Genius Goodwin? Yeah, that would be Archie Goodwin, who was the editor of the comic book. Ah, okay. I was uh, wondering what... And I, I will not argue with that nomenclature. I think that Archie Goodwin is, in fact, a genius. He's a great writer. He actually wrote the first issue of Luke Cage Hero for Hire. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good to know. He's got a number of credits under his belt, both as an editor and as an author. But uh, he's he's a good writer. I like him. All right. So Double G. Yep. Earned it. Nice. You ready to get into the minutia? Yep. All right, Rick, why don't you sing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Yep, thank you. Sound effects. There were a lot of them in here. What were some of your favorites? Oh, my. There was different categories, as always. And sure. Ones that I appreciated because of what was going on in the scene, and then others that I just thought were funny sounds. Mm-hmm. And I think my favorite one, because of what was going on in the scene, is the noise that it makes when Norris gets bonked on the head by Ruby with his own gun, which is clink. Pretty good. Which pretty good. makes it nope. sound like his head's made out of glass or something. 
I think it's just uh, assuming that we will toast each other when uh. Jack Norris gets knocked unconscious. And so it's the sound of our Manhattan glasses clinking together. And it's C-L-N-K, right? There's, so. there's no vowels in there. Yeah, it's a, a celebratory. Hey, Jack Norris just got knocked out. That was a pretty good one. I did like the noise of Jack Norris's super spy cufflink exploding, which makes the noise bluey. That was pretty fun. Along similar lines, when Ruby Thursday takes off her bowling ball head and throws it at the Hulk and it bounces around like a super ball and he tries to stop it, he eventually does. And when he punches the disembodied bowling ball head, it makes the noise sploog. I read it more of a splog. Well, there's two O's. Is there? Yeah. Oh, I only wrote one of them when I was taking my notes. <laughs> Oops. No, it's sploog. Like you would say if a Bronze Age Man-Thing artist Mike Plug showed up at a party and you were happy to see him, you'd be like, hey, Sploog! Oh, it's... Yeah, like, it's Plug, not like you just Splooged because you were so happy to see him. (laughs) Oh, no. I mean, you're happy to see him. (laughs) He's a good artist, but you're probably not that happy to see him. That's a different... Yeah, that's a different... Kettle of fish. (laughs) I also had the noise that the shrinking gas gun makes when it is deployed, and it happens a couple of times in the issue, both on page 16 and on page 38, and the noise that it makes when you shoot the gas gun is choosh. And I thought that was pretty evocative. Yeah, yeah, it's a good gassy sound. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A healthy person would not make a choosh noise when they were making it. No, a good gas gun sound. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, well, you just have a good gassy sound. Oh, sure. That seems to... I I can see your confusion. Right. Yeah, excuse me. Not like (laughs) somebody squeezing a half-empty ranch bottle type of gassy noise. (laughs) Um, Balloon flying around the room. (laughs) Yep. Bean moss. Pie not made out of steel. All right. What was your pie not made out of steel? What metaphor did you enjoy the way you would enjoy a piece of pie where that pie not made out of steel? We talked about it a little bit already, but uh-huh. I'm going to have to go with Steve's soliloquy on the value of bozos in human nature. Let's hear it. This is when Nebulon is staggering backwards after seeing all of the ills of humanity. And Steve says, You understand now, don't you? Man is a creature whose most despicable qualities often result in his most towering achievements. Rob us of the fool... The adventurer, the scoundrel, in short, the bozo, in each of our souls, and we are nothing. Nothing, hub. All right. I don't buy Steve's argument, and I do love that Nebulon's reaction to it is basically like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? Yeah, he's just like, he yep, zaps. He's like, I'm fucking out. out. This is crazy. I'm taking my Ludbernites and going home. Have fun with your fucking bozoness. Yeah. You rob us of our inner bozo and we are but not. That, that, that's pretty fun. I went with a really short one because of what was going on in the scene that it was. My favorite metaphor, my pie not made out of steel, was Gerald Ford's looking himself in the mirror and saying, straight as an arrow. Because what is happening is, it is before Steve arrives, the office is oval, the tie is crooked, the man is president, the moment is portentous. And we see him looking at his tie, which has just been described as crooked, in the mirror and saying to himself, 
straight as an arrow. Yep. And it is just a fun moment of Steve Gerber looking at President Ford and saying, what a dipshit. Yeah, Gerald Ford doesn't come out of this issue very, very well. (laughs) No, he really doesn't. But it was really fun, and he is beautifully drawn. There is no question that is Gerald Ford. Sal Buscema does a really nice job of that. Mm -hmm. How is my pie not made out of steel? Do you feel like hitting up next? Let's talk about... Close. Okay, sartorially speaking, which aspects of fashion that were rendered in this issue do you feel are most worthy of our attention? Well, this one is subtle, but you just talked about it, and the president's tie looks very 70s to me. And we are very 70s in this issue. Yes, we are. November 1976. I didn't even catch that. What was so 70s about the president's tie? Wide diagonal, I believe, brown and yellow, or brown and Mm. orange stripes. It's a nice call. There are a lot of things in this that I wanted to bring up fashion-wise. One of them is also pretty subtle, but I call it the Bozocutioner, because when we see the guillotine scene in France, there's one dude standing off to the side of the other bozos who, while he is still definitely wearing a clown mask, he is also wearing a suit, and he's got the tufts of bozo hair sticking out the side, but he's got like an executioner's hood on. And it's just this weird instance of just like, yeah, that guy's absolutely the Bozocutioner, and I don't know why he's there, but I kind of love it. Menacing and goofy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I really enjoyed that. One of my favorite things in this issue is Steve's phantom cape. When Steve changes into a suit and tie after using his powers to tidy up the newspapers, which I really appreciated. We see him flying off to Washington, and there is like this ghostly image of his cloak of levitation just superimposed over his suit, and it's really cool looking. Mm-hmm. And I I think it's supposed to show that his cape is invisible at that point, but I really like the idea of it just looking like that, because that looks cool. Other than that, I don't know if it counts as sartorial necessarily, but I love that Ruby Thursday, in her more human-looking appearance, is constantly smoking a corncob pipe. I don't get it. I don't either. It's pretty funny. It, it was pretty funny. I wonder if it was just that she was supposed to be getting high or something. Because, like, I get the impression they're kind of, she hers is kind of a hippie movement. She's from California. Uh-huh. And the slogan is, uh, new heads for old heads. For some reason. <laughs> yep. But yeah, she is constantly smoking a corncob pipe. And I was just like, that is a weird touch. And I like it, but I don't get it. And, of course, on page 30, we get one of her party goers. Ah, I had him too. I call him the hippie maitre d'. <laughs> the mustache. Yeah, he's a bald dude with a comb over and a little maitre d' mustache. But he's wearing this weird yellow and white amoeba design shirt. It's pretty cool looking, but it's mostly just weird to see it on a dude who looks like the Italian mob boss from Miller's Crossing. Do you know who I'm talking about? The guy who's always saying, whew, running things. Oh, man, I saw the movie, but I can't picture the... Ah, I'll show you a picture of him later. Okay. But yeah, it's just incongruous. Like, his face looks so at odds with his outfit. And he's like a middle-aged man trying desperately to look hip in the 70s and really failing at it. Mm -hmm. But it seems consistent with the type of person who would make a large donation to a hip new political party. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was really well, well done. Yeah, yeah, I had the same guy. Cool. And I had one last bit, which is Norris's uh, fuchsia tux jacket. It's real nice. Mm -hmm. It's real stupid looking. Shiny, probably. So conspicuous. The most conspicuous spy. Yeah. 
He's the worst. He really is. Speaking of which... Every issue of Defenders comic has a best defender and a worst offender. In this issue, who was the worst offender who did the worst job? I wrote down Norris exclamation point idiot period. (laughs) Fair. He's so dumb. (laughs) It's so fun watching him bumble through this bullshit. Yeah, I would absolutely read a spinoff series of him being a terrible spy. And he really is. He, He does an awful, awful job. I don't think he understands what he's supposed to be doing as a spy. No, I think he's just, all of his research was he watched a bunch of James Bond movies. It's like, I get to drink drinks. I get to be creepy to ladies. Yep. Then at the end of the day, that's just, uh, then you've just won by doing those things. Your cufflinks explode. You talk to yourself about how great you are. Yep. And uh, yeah, that's that. Drive a nice car. Spying. I'm great at it. Done and done. Stupid idiot. He is a stupid idiot. (laughs) (laughs) My backup was Kyle, and my backup to that was pretty much everybody. That, With the exception of Steve, they all do a spectacularly terrible job in this issue. They all get captured by the headmen and shrunk down, except for the Hulk, I guess. Hulk does okay. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they're just a bunch of bumbling idiots, but Nighthawk is, of the other defenders, he's the most of a dick while he's doing his bumbling, so he was my backup. Yeah, typical Kyle. But yeah, uh, Jack definitely, you know... Takes the cake and then trips and falls and gets cake all over his stupid face. Wastes all that money. Wastes all that cake. Oh, what a wastrel. Yes, a real bozo. Indeed. Conversely, best defender? It feels a little weird to say it, but Steve, strange, man. He saved the day, and I really love that he put the President of the United States in a, a face manacle. I don't know what you call that thing. <laughs> it's great. But it was hilarious. It's it's great, and what he says as he does it, too. The President's about to give a speech in praise of bozos and admitting to the failures of the nation, which I don't think in and of itself is a bad thing. My fellow Americans... I think it is especially appropriate in this bicentennial year that we celebrate our ignorance as well as our accom... Once more, Mr. President, my sincerest apologies, but I think even my temper should be strained to the limit were you to deem us a nation of bozos. Zing. Yeah, he does that. He sends his astral form out to get the Hulk, which... Saves the day. Saves the day. He turns the Secret Serviceman's pistols into guns that have little flags that say bang when they try and shoot him for doing that to the president. Ah, it was so fun. It was a good time. And he tidies up after himself, which I also really appreciated. If I could do magic, I would totally clean shit up with it. Yeah, he's got four newspapers spread on the table. And after he has teleported everyone away against their will on their little missions that he has assigned for them, he uses his powers to tidy up the table. Mm Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that. So, well done, Steve. Good job, Steve. You win. Yes. This time. Backup, I suppose, would be the Hulk. Yeah, smash, man. Yeah. Smash it good. Yeah, he does some great smashing. Smashes a terrarium. Yep. Yeah, fuck that terrarium. Prison. Yeah, let the defenders go. Let everybody go. Everybody's free. Yes. Good Good job, job, the Hulk. What was your favorite panel? Ooh, there was a, a lot of pretty good art in this one. I think my, my favorite, the whole series of politics and space yeah, on page 46 is awesome. But the, the one that's got Strange and Nebulon with Ford in the middle sitting on little, I don't know, asteroids is just super cool. It is. I really, really liked that one, too. I think my favorite is the panel that I call Shut Up, Mr. President. 
Just the face face manacle on Gerald Ford. That was really good. I also really like the introduction of Gerald Ford of him looking at his crooked tie in the mirror that has just been described as crooked and saying, straight as an arrow. It's a really nice picture of Gerald Ford. The other one that I think might be my favorite is on page 31, and I call it Stupid Jack Norris. And it is Jack Norris realizing (laughs) that the jig is up. (laughs) And the caption because. I was sure she'd bought it. I was wrong. Dead wrong. And it's the panel of him making a like, oops, I fucked up face. And the caption work is, hehe, I said. And him making the dumbest face in the world before he gets hit over the head with a gun. I love that expression. It's really, really good. It is very funny. I think he's trying to be like, make an endearing, I'm an idiot smile. Please, yeah. Please don't bonk it's me like, on the head. Like, aren't I a scamp? Yeah. But, but yeah she's not having it no and it's followed by the clink yep yeah i think that's probably my favorite in this issue as every issue of a defender's comic there is one character who just has to be a sucker who has to act in a manner contrary to his previously established character or motivation not unlike the fat boys in the film crush groove and just have to be a sucker in this issue who is your sucker this one is maybe a little bit of a stretch but it seemed very strange to me that Ruby was really, like, running shit. She was a very effective character. Uh-huh. Up until Hulk shows up, and then she's like, you know what, I'm going to take my head off and throw it at him. <laughs> it was a cool move, though. And then he and then he punches it. and It almost stopped him, though, because when he did punch it, that was when it released the gamma radiation. Mm-hmm. Yep, which, which, which messed him up, so it worked. But just as a, like, a gambit, it seemed really out of character. For her. I get that. I think the character that was the most a sucker for me in this issue was Jack Norris suddenly deciding that he was handsome. Like, suddenly deciding that he was very handsome was just like, wait, where did that come from? That's not something he's ever... I mean, he's been an asshole, and he's been kind of an arrogant asshole, but it's always been more entitled than it has been, like, aren't I good-looking? Except for the brief period when he was in Kyle's body. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he was just like, hey, look at this. I'm as handsome as two handsome men. Mm-hmm. But only at nighttime. But yeah, the idea that Jack Norris suddenly is calling himself pretty boy and saying like, I told you to look for the most gorgeous person there just because he's wearing a tuxedo. Yeah, the idea that Jack Norris suddenly considers himself staggeringly handsome uh, was my character who just had to be a sucker. Corey, we all know that the Hulk rules, but in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? What lesson did the Hulk learn? Well, the lesson that the Hulk had to share with us from this issue was that before you can take care of other people, you have to take care of yourself first. Mm. It's really about self-care, self-love. So when you have a bowling ball brain on your fist emitting gamma rays hurting you, and Doctor Strange is telling you to just smash that terrarium, first, take care of the bowling ball gamma ray emitting head on your fist. Take care of yourself first. Oh. Self-love. It worked out that it smashed the terrarium also as he was trying to get it off, which was cool. <laughs> but, you know, that was the takeaway. I gotcha. Think. I think that's a really strong, really valuable lesson. The lesson that I think the Hulk learned from this was a lesson he learned from Nebulon, which was, man, people just fucking suck. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. He, he just, uh, he saw all of human history and was able to look at it and just think to himself, man, 
If it weren't for geese, people would be the worst. Thank, thank goodness for geese. Thank goodness for geese. I guess that's the Hulk's rule, is thank goodness for geese. TGFG. All right. Self-loving geese. <laughs> Don't mix them up, man. <laughs> Don't do Don't it. Don't try to combine them. Don't do it. Don't do it. No. Corey, I think we can both agree that this comic was too damn long. Oh, that's fair. Okay, let's go with that. Too damn long. In the year of our Lord, 1976, and the month of our Lord, November, what was Wong doing? Oh, Jesus. We could call this section Wong doings. Ah, because there were some things that were done Wong, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, we know that, among many things, Wong is also a keen follower of the democratic political process mm. um, in the U.S. and other places, and was keen to see the outcome of the election uh, for president. And unfortunately, as we often find him, he's a little, in this case, a lot unhappy with Doctor Strange because of his perhaps unintentional influence of the election and, and just meddling with the political process. So the result of the election was that Ford, who was president at the time, lost to Jimmy Carter. Right. But what a lot of people don't know is what really hindered the incumbent's campaign was the fact that he was unable to speak because he had a giant steel manacle on his face. Corey, have you heard Gerald Ford speak? Uh, I don't think I have, actually. I think that may have been a boon to his campaign. I think perhaps the election was closer due to his inability to uh, give a speech by because he had a manacle over his mouth. Either way, what Wong's gripe was is that Strange interfered with the process. Uh -huh. He didn't like it. He felt sad about it, in fact. He was disappointed. He was down in the dumps. But he had a little pick-me-up on Sunday morning when the paper came. Oh, what was that? Because he did his usual routine. Get his coffee, get his cereal... Flip to the funnies. Don't do it, Corey. Don't do it. And much to his delight, <laughs> debuted a charming comic strip, which was the first instance of Kathy Corey. showing up. <laughs> yes? This is character assassination. You are making Wong a fan of G G Gerald Ford and the Kathy comic no, strip. No, no, no. Not a fan of Gerald Ford. A fan of the democratic process. And also... Delighting, <laughs> charming story of uh, every person's struggle. Kathy. Oh, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's one possible interpretation of hey, this book was, the Wong doings it was, there was of Wong 1976 doings. November. There was a lot Wong with that picture. Wong, as you said, has been keeping up with current events, and one of the things that he noticed was that... Gary Gilmore, a murderer in Utah, who was advocating for himself to receive the death penalty, his case went to the Utah Supreme Court on November 10th. And Wong was watching these proceedings and was just like, I just don't understand how someone could be advocating to end their own life. I, I know that things can be pretty rough, and, and especially if you feel remorse for having done something wrong, but as long as there's life, there's hope. I, I just don't understand how somebody could feel that way. Then, later that month, Stephen Strange came home, guffawing at, a, at something he saw in the newspaper. It was the debut of Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> and after having Stephen Strange go for two weeks straight, 
reading aloud every single Kathy comic strip to him and going, ha, she loves shoes. Ha. Oh, chocolate. <laughs> I hear you, Kathy. Will that Irv never commit to you? Oh, Kathy. Ack indeed. <laughs> Wong was like, no, you know what? I get it. I get it. I'm finally starting to see things through Gary Gilmore's eyes. Oh, jeez. And he happened to mention that to one of his friends who was visiting from England, a woman by the name of Gay Advert, who was in a punk band called The Adverts. And uh, she was like, oh, it's got a good ring to it. And later on, they came out with a song uh, looking through Gary Gilmore's eyes. Uh, which was ostensibly about the idea that he was, uh, Gary Gilmore was an organ donor, so his, potentially somebody could be looking through his, uh, the eyes of someone who had been a murderer. But really, she got the phrase from Wong, thinking, my God, Kathy is the worst comic strip ever. If I have to listen to Stephen Strange read aloud another Kathy comic strip to me, I would wish that I was dead. Two sides of a coin, my friends. Indeed. <laughs> And that was the Wong doings of November 1976. Whew. Whew. We did it. Well, that was the King-Sized Defenders Annual. I'm kind of sad that Steve Gerber's run is coming to an end. Oh, man, it, it's been too. inconsistent, but the highs have been really high, and I think would have been more enjoyable if we had been really high, too. But... Still, like, there is a lot in here that has been really fun. This issue was very inconsistent, I feel like, and felt both very rushed and unnecessarily padded out at the same time. But there was some really fun stuff in here. We get one more Gerber wrap-up issue, uh, which will be the Defenders 41. But I'm excited to see what comes next. Likewise. And speaking of excited, next week we will be covering the finale of the Judas Contract, which I'm super stoked to see how that turns out, too. Yeah, me too. So we hope you'll join us for those. By the time this comes out, there'll be a new episode of What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show for our Patreon donors, where Lisa and I will cover Giant Size Man Thing number five, if you would like to listen to that. That is for our Patreon donors only, so you can become that <laughs> you can you can become a donor by giving us money that's how that works sure and the place you can do that is patreon.com slash tt wasteland uh what the duck is a monthly podcast which is me and lisa talking howard the duck and it's pretty great and if that's not your cup of tea there's a bunch of other stuff on there and just in general your support is part of what keeps the podcast going. And so if you want to ensure that the podcast keeps on going, then that would be a place you can give us money. Thank you. Other things you could do to be supportive? Well, you could leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, I think we're up on Spotify now, so you can leave us a review there. You can, I think, can you leave reviews on Spotify? I didn't even know Spotify did podcasts, so... Me either, man. I just clicked a button and said, hey, put this podcast on Spotify. Nice. So, I think it's there. That means I can ask Alexa to play it. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. That means you can, viewers, too. You just say, Alexa, play, tighten up the defense. I'm sorry. I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, that's probably how it'll go. So, tell you what. Alexa, play Kung Fu Fighting by Carl Douglas. She knows that one, I think. Yeah. I'm just wondering if when people are listening to this, if they're doing it through an Echo device, if uh, if it'll just start doing those things I said to do. I hope so. I hope so, too. Another nice thing that you can do is to tell your friends, 
and your enemies mm-hmm. and anybody else that they should maybe listen to the podcast. Yeah, that's true. That's that's a nice thing to do also. Yes. And if you'd like to get into touch with us, you can do that on WBZT Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> yep. No, uh, you can do that by sending us an email at ttwasteland at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at ttwasteland underscore. You can find us in your hearts and your mind and your... Enemy minds. And your enemy minds. Where it turns out we will be playing the role of Dennis Quaid. (laughs) Not Nick Nolte. Not Nick Nolte. Although probably also Nick Nolte. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you can find us on Instagram. Uh, It's a page that Lisa runs for us. And Tumblr. And I don't know if you want to start any kind of fan appreciation pages on like Reddit or something. Why not do that? That'll be fun. Oh, cool. And then you can start a community and that'll be fun. Win prizes. Yeah, you can probably win prizes. That's how that works, right? Yeah, you start a community, you win a prize. Okay. That's always been the way that works, Corey. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to win prizes, start a community Mm -hmm. for for us. Sure. Yeah. And let us know what prizes you want. Or which ones you won. Yeah, which ones you won. (laughs) I'm going to check if, I mean, in a certain way, we started a community of listeners. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, we should get a prize. Yeah, I wonder what prizes we won. Hostess Twinkies. Oh, good call. Mm. Delicious. Well, we're going to go check our mailboxes and see if we won any prizes. Goodbye. Bye. And they knew it. Spider-Man in The Spider-Man and The Fly. Spider-Man is a prisoner of a villain called The Fly. Wake up, webhead. Just what I've always wanted to have breakfast with, The Fly. But what happened? I remember being thrown off from the top of the Empire State Building. Fly. Now, that wasn't nice. But what am I doing here? I'm here to entertain you, webhead. Just what I needed. A few laughs. Don't get trapped in your own network of puns, insect imitator. This is no laughing matter. You'll soon be wiggling and squirming, my spidery friend, when you see what I have in store for you. Wrong, my buzzing fly friend. These traps can't hold me. So whatever you have in store for me, you'll have to sell to someone else. Aha! Come into my parlor, said the fly to the spider. Or was it the other way around? My spider sense is tingling, but nothing else is moving. I must break this electronic field trap, somehow. This is serious, my wiry friend and enemy. Let's hear a joke now. Okay, you win. I give up. But first, have a hostess Twinkies here in my utility belt. Mmm, delicious hostess Twinkies. It's the only thing that I love. That golden sponge cake and creamed filling. Okay, my buzzing gadfly. I'm going to swat you like a mosquito. Bonk. Why the fuck not like a fly? I don't know. Do what you want. Clip my wings. Anything. But at least have the decency to let me finish my wonderful hostess Twinkies. 
Of course, my noble enemy. I dispense justice tempered with mercy. And sometimes, even with Hostess Twinkies. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkies. Right here in my utility belt. Oh. <laughs> uh, dumb. That was goofy. That was a terrible, like, for a Hostess Twinkie ad, that was terribly written. It was one of the worst. Ah. I don't want any Twinkies. That fly is an idiot. He's a dumbass. Fuck you, the fly. And Spider-Man's not much better. Yeah, bad job, guys. Yeah. Come on, Oh, you're the fly. I'll swat you like a mosquito. And the fly doesn't get the spider and fly thing as backwards. And then he does a little bit at the end after he says it. It's just dumb. And I don't know what the shit was about the Empire State Building or... (sighs) No goddamn sense. Boo! Bad job. Bad job. Burn your Twinkies. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. (laughs) But first, have a hostess Twinkies here in my utility belt. Spider-Man, that's your dick. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Mmm, delicious. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) See that coming. Robot hub. Robot karate. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> that's the dangerous, most dangerous. Nope, that's humans. Uh, nah. I feel like robots who <laughs> knew karate may not have been invented yet when they wrote the uh, the story, The Most Dangerous Game. Oh, okay. That's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Wait, we have those now? I got to assume. I think it would be naive to think that we don't. Mm. People. Mm. Always trying to think, can they build a robot that can do karate? Not should they build a robot that can do karate? It's that type of mentality that that sets us back, that holds us back. Mm. Yeah, it really is. It's unfortunate. Yeah. But also, a robot that does karate is pretty badass. <laughs>